afternoon and welcome to the 37th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a public health update with Esther Chernak and a discussion with Disaster Research Center co-director James Kendra. We're streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter. I, uh, you can find me on Twitter, at US of Disaster. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and connect to the COVID calls podcast. Please do help spread the word about COVID calls and send suggestions for future guests and topics. And please do suggest yourself if you'd like to participate. On Wednesday, I'll be talking with an old and treasured friend, Chuck Strozier. Uh, Chuck is an expert on terrorism, on apocalyptic thinking, disaster psychology. We're gonna be talking about COVID-19 and these many issues around apocalyptic thinking. As of today, there are 3,640,835 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. This is up from 3,562,919 cases yesterday. 1,194,494 of those are in the United States, up from 1,172,670 yesterday. There are now a total reported 70,272 deaths in the United States from COVID-19, up from 68,326 deaths reported yesterday. And you may remember a couple of weeks back, I talked with Lori Peak, and she talked about um, those numbers and the importance of hearing those numbers every day. But we also talked about the importance of hearing human stories and others have written to me and, and have expressed that same desire. So I'm, I started yesterday reading an obituary and I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep that up. Um, I'm gonna read you one today that was just in the New York Times. Uh, Daniel and Valerie Zane married 71 years, died two days apart. Daniel Zane fought in World War II. In a way, it helped prepare him for the painful time in mid-April when his wife of 71 years, Valerie Zane, was dying. He used to say, I survived the Battle of the Bulge. I can survive anything, his son-in-law, Greg Hetwer, recalled. But he could not survive the novel coronavirus. He died of it on April 17th at 94, just two days before his wife, who had been in declining health for seven years with Parkinson's disease and dementia, died at 91. She had not been tested for the virus. The two were in a senior living facility in Haverford, Pennsylvania, outside Philadelphia. When the pandemic forced restrictions, Mr. Zane was no longer allowed to walk from his independent living unit to visit his wife in the skilled nursing unit. So he moved into a small apartment in the nursing unit to care for her. He then tested positive for the coronavirus and could not see her, which left him distraught. She was dying and he knew he couldn't save her. A terrible blow for a man who had always been so capable. While in the army, where he proved to be quick on his feet and a natural leader, he did reconnaissance work behind enemy lines and then helped liberate concentration camps. After the war, he went to Fordham Law School and practiced law in Manhattan. He married Valerie Zuckerman, whom he had met on a blind date in 1949. They moved to White Plains, New York, where they raised their two daughters, Robin Zane, who was married to Mr. Hetwer, and Nancy Zane. Mrs. Zane worked as a medical administrator 
and was a master bridge player. So we're going to move to our discussion today. We have a great discussion today with Esther Chernak and with Jim Kendra. Um, you're familiar with Esther Chernak by now, but if this is your first time tuning into COVID calls, let me introduce her. She's associate professor in the Department of Environmental Health, the Drexel University School of Public Health, Dornsife School of Public Health, and the Drexel University College of Medicine. She's the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at Drexel, and she worked for 25 years at the city of Philadelphia Public Health Department. Please get your questions in for Esther Chernak using the YouTube live chat function, or you can email them to me directly, sgk23 at drexel.edu, or you can send them to me on Twitter, just tag me at US of Disaster. Esther, thanks for coming back to COVID Calls. My pleasure. So can we start as we have been, uh, give us an update on Philadelphia. Well, it's an interesting time in Philadelphia. I think today the health commissioner announced that the city has over 16,000 cases from a cumulative perspective and around 750 deaths. But the hopeful news is that we believe that the peak, the so-called peak of this is behind us, at least for the moment. And um, if, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we are seeing uh, somewhat fewer cases reported per day, somewhat fewer deaths reported to, uh, to date. I think the one of the more notable things is that it, it appears that the percentage of positive tests has gone down. So some of that reflects we're testing more, but ideally it might reflect some decrement in the numerator as well. That you know we often look at the percentage positivity as a marker for activity. So I think the hope is that the worst of this is behind us. The, the, the bad news within that is that we're at a pretty high rate. Um, you know, we talk about being the peak being behind us, but today there were set 370 new cases reported and 17 new deaths reported. So from a plateau, that's quite a high daily rate. And so we still have quite a ways to go before we start to see really diminished, uh, you know, transmission in the city. Um, I think that in, in Philadelphia, like the rest of the country, but perhaps maybe worse in Philadelphia, certainly Pennsylvania, we're still seeing huge amounts of clusters in nursing homes and congregate uh, care facilities. There's not a lot of granularity in the data that's being posted to the public website, but I'm interested in knowing to what extent these hotspots, particularly in long-term care facilities and congregate care facilities are driving our local transmission. And that'll be important, I think, as we think about what lies ahead of us and how do we really manage the, this now. I have so many questions for you about the statistics. Just let's stick with Philadelphia for a second. As you understand the case rate, it's also got to be connected to the social distancing, right? And mm -hmm. the, the degree to which people are, are following the instructions of the mayor and the governor. Yeah, yeah. So if that changes, then we can expect a change in the infection rate? I mean, that's, that's the uh, driving assumption behind all of the models. And you were asking about this before the call, you know, how do we think about the models that have just come out with widely different expectations for case rates and death rates. Um, but a lot of the assumptions are that the social distancing we do um, will make a big difference in terms of driving our case counts. I mean, the challenge here is the lag between um, when we undertake these health protective behaviors like social distancing and when we start to see uh, reductions in transmission, reductions in case counts, and then reductions in hospitalizations, and then eventually deaths. That can be three to four to five to six weeks later, uh, which is why it's mm. 
challenging thing to measure, but also to implement because it's certainly not the kind of thing where you have immediate satisfaction when you start, when you do these things. Just um, for somebody like myself, who's, who's learning a lot of public health as we're going through this, it's not just the presence of the, of the virus, the length of time it's been in the population. Those are not necessarily the factors we should be looking at right now. We still need to be looking at these direct um, uh, sort of behaviors that people need to exhibit. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, I think, you know, we talk about how do we, how do we diminish the amplitude of the epi curve? How do we reduce the number of cases? And I think the big one that most people agree upon is, is decreasing mobility in a population, which is another way of talking about social distancing. And it's everything from staying inside your house and sheltering in place to decreasing mobility within your jurisdiction. And when we talk about U.S. cases, we're also talking about, you know, decreasing mobility with respect to allowing international travel or preventing international travel in those imported cases and also talking about reducing interstate travel where there's hot spots in some states and not so hot spots, but, you know, uh, interstate travel, you know, allowing, you know, you know, transmission across state lines. So that's probably the biggest thing that we can do at the moment in the absence of a vaccine or an effective medication for post-exposure, even pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, you know, there's, in, you know, related to that is the strategy of targeted testing, expanding testing, and targeted, um, you know, um, uh, case identification and mm. tracing. Um, that's, I think of that as a relative of social distance, but it's a much more precise, targeted way of uh, limiting transmission from person to person. Mm. The, um, so this, this, I was looking at different kinds of measures last night, and one of the things I was looking at was uh, infection rates, but also um, ICU bed occupancy. And I don't know if you've seen, you probably keep up with these numbers every day, but I was looking that some states that have had increasing infection rates, like Georgia, for example, and Nebraska, still have very low ICU occupation. Whereas New York and New Jersey, which seem, it's not flat in the curve, but maybe there's a slowdown, they're still at like 90 to 100% ICU capacity. Can you work that in a little bit and yeah. help us understand why that's relevant? So I think a couple things account for that observation. I think in some of these states that are relatively speaking early on compared to say New York, New Jersey, which have had pretty established epidemics for weeks now, um, you're not gonna see a consumption of ICU beds early on. It's gonna be this exponential increase. And so I think we need to look at those states two, four, five, six weeks from now when we really start to see the consequences of um, unrestrained, uncontained transmission in those states that right now have, might have relatively low or low-ish case counts. I think that could change. I think we may see more ICU beds taken up. The other challenge, the other side of the coin in states that have had pretty significant sustained transmission for some time now, or even now hopefully decreasing transmission, is that one of the challenges in, intensive, in this disease is that people develop respiratory failure and it lasts a long time. People end up, you know, the sequence of events here is that, you know, there's, a, there's an illness occurs, it can, after usually, you know, four or five, maybe up to 14 days after exposure. And then there's an illness um, that lasts for about a week or so. And typically the deterioration that results in respiratory failure occurs in week two of the illness. And then a certain percentage of those people end up in hospital and then in intensive care unit beds. And many of the people who require intensive care unit stays and mechanical ventilation remain on ventilators for a long period of time, weeks. 
And that's particularly true of elderly folks who with respiratory failure. So when you see uh, states and cities that have that you know seem to be on the declining end of their epidemic their ICU beds are not emptying out because they're still caring for people that were that developed disease four and five weeks ago that's one of the tragedies of this of this pandemic so then are we paying attention to the wrong I mean it's, it's like sometimes the the daily description is, has become almost, I think, for some people, like a weather forecast of sorts. We're like, well, it's, it's up today, it's down tomorrow. We feel like we're on top of it because we're reading the dashboard of the number of cases. You're describing something that we should be looking at at the, at the longer tail, four weeks or six weeks. Maybe this ICU occupancy is a better measure even than infection rate somehow. Well, I think new hospitalizations tell you something about um, new cases, um, albeit it's a, there's a lag in that in that measurement. I think looking at hospitalizations um, and hospital bed capacity and, and ICU capacity tells you something a little bit different. If you're if you're a healthcare planner trying to figure out if your healthcare system has the capacity to care for new cases, you need that number. Mm. It's not a way to be on top of the epidemic in terms of new events. If that if that makes sense. I see. So I wanted to. Um I wanted to ask you ever since yesterday, I was so glad you were coming on today because the New York Times broke this story last night and they leaked a, a report that uh, is an internal document from HHS and FEMA and CDC that paints a very different picture from what we've been hearing, not only from President Trump, but also from Dr. Fauci and others um, who have significant credibility within the administration um, saying that among the many things that the report says, it paints a picture that says we could be expecting um, somewhere around 3,000 deaths a day by June in the United States. We're already at 70,000 deaths, so we've gone well past that low number that Dr. Fauci put out a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, I guess, up 60,000. I mean, obviously, it's very complicated as we were just discussing. There's so many factors, but were you surprised? Surprised by that report? Were you expecting um, those kinds of numbers? What? How do you interpret this new, um, this new very grim picture that's been painted for us? Leaving aside the issue that we've been told we should go back out and reopen everything, yeah. we'll get to yeah. that. But just the report itself and those numbers are those startling to you? Yeah. Uh, yes and no. I mean, there's a number of different models that I think became public yesterday, and I think you're citing one of the most uh, dire or grimmest uh, one that well, I think that I think that was the report that came out of out of Hopkins uh, the IHME updated their projection and they they were the original ones or the or one of the earlier ones that had predicted 60,000 deaths by August I think it was clear it's been clear for several weeks that that was a gross underestimate of what you know what was going to really happen um, their new their new um, projection is probably more realistic um, and, and that might be the right place. I think, you know, all these models are only as good as the assumptions on which they're based. And um, that's what changes all the time. It's the degree to which we are effectively as a country employing social distancing and other containment strategies and, you know, the lack of predictability about how that's going to play out across 50 states and even within states. You can see, you know, if you look at the CDC maps that were published in the last couple of days, you know, even within states, there's huge variation in terms of the trajectory of the epidemic in different in different counties. Um, so at least they, you know, I think I think some of the revisions have to do with a, a more realistic estimate of the efficacy of social distancing as it's being implemented. 
um, I think probably there was a huge underestimation of the hotspots and the degree to which these hotspots are driving community transmission and just case counts and as well as deaths. And so, I, I you know, I think the 60,000 number was aspirational. I think for weeks now, it was clear that that was a gross underestimate. I don't know what the right number is going to be. I'd like to think that all of these are too high because yeah. it, the reality was much better. Right. The hotspots you're mentioning, these are places like the nursing homes, the meatpacking facilities, the places where you're all of a sudden getting two to 300 cases all at once. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's something yep. you just said that I've, that's been on my mind too. I mean, I reached a point, I don't know, at some point where I started to think 60,000 people dying from this over 10 weeks was somehow acceptable. Um, and I worry along those same lines that 100,000 will become acceptable and 200,000 will become acceptable. I mean, you're an expert in this. How do you maintain alarm? I don't know what other word to use. I mean, if, if we just decide that this is an acceptable trade-off, um, even in states that have been pretty vigilant about social distancing, we could, it seems like, come to a place where people will just come to accept this as a kind of, a kind of normal normal thing. That's my real worry right now. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And I think it's all right there in the open. I feel like the administration really kind of does want to habituate us to, to this to a certain degree. I don't know how else you explain the increased number of deaths, the clear evidence, and also the advice to move away from social distancing as a, as a practice. The numbers are numbing. I agree with you. And I, I think there's a danger in just, you know, sitting inside an office and counting cases and looking at epi curves and, mm -hmm. and being too removed from, from families who are, you know, sitting with loved ones who are sick and dying and being removed from healthcare facilities. Um, and, I, you know, I, you just sort of have to remember that there's a reality to this. It's not just, you know, I hear politicians on, on the, you know, on news shows talking about there's a certain number of deaths we're just going to have to tolerate to save the economy. And it shouldn't, that's a trade-off we shouldn't be asked to bear. We should be, we are better than this. And we can come up, I'm not an economist, and I don't know how to, you know, how to uh, rescue the economy but we should be able to make investments in public health management that don't require us to make these trade-offs. I mean, social distancing is the, is the, is the uh, behavior of last resort when you, don't know when, you're, when, when you don't know how to manage things and you can't find cases. And we know what we need to do to identify cases and identify contacts. It requires an enormous effort, probably nothing like we've ever done in this country before, but it's doable. We understand how to do it conceptually. We've seen other countries do it. Um, and the, the, the crime here is that we're not doing it as a country. Um, you know, here we are months later, um, mired in increasing case counts. I mean, I read this afternoon, though, that the, the administration is, is potentially winding down its coronavirus task force. And, and I, I don't know how to, how to read that. I mean, is it your sense that the American public is 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 already numb to a certain degree or in public health generally there's been this sort of diminution of expectation over time or something that people could possibly think this is okay acceptable um just the way it's going to be for for america i don't know how to read that move um and i don't you know there's clearly a couple of very different schools of thought in terms of the way people are looking at this and i have to think that that's not going to be static 
that mm. as this epidemic moves across the country and affects communities that maybe today aren't as hard or aren't as you know greatly impacted that attitudes will change it's just unfortunate not everything is going to happen concurrently and so you're going to have different parts of the country experiencing this in different ways um and and you know i think when when it looks like it's someone else's problem or some other part of the country's problem it's easier to to say those things and, and open up your your borders etc um I, I also think you know, I think we have this draconian approach to social distancing, which is absolutely crippling the economy and very difficult to endure. Um, but we're not doing what we need to do uh, to allow us to, to step back from that. We're not mm -hmm. ramping up testing in ways that really allow us to be much more sophisticated and, and targeted around this so that mm -hmm. we have to just shut ourselves inside our houses and not go out. Right. <laughs> this transmission and that's what's so frustrating we all want to stop the social distancing we think we know what we need to do to you know to be able to ratchet it back but we're not doing that and and that's what's frustrating from my perspective well that seems like a missing piece here that actually has a really important political valence to it which is you know protesters in minnesota or, or in michigan or in texas who are demanding the end of social distancing it, based on what you just said, it, it seems like their signs should say, we demand contact tracing now, which is to say, we want to move away from social distancing and let's do it in a way where we, where we can have some confidence that the science will protect, protect us. I mean, you've been following this pretty closely. Why has that demand, a demand we might make of government, um, why is that not being articulated as forcefully as it could? So I think it depends on who you're listening to. But what I think, and I, you know. I listen mostly to Fox News, so you'll have to just. <laughs> but, I, you know, what I think is, I think this is the Achilles heel of this, of these, this administration, their, their approach to this pandemic, because they're saying we have enough tests, we have enough tests, everything is fine. And if they acknowledge that we don't have the right amount of tests to do what we need to do to back off on social distancing, that'll be an embarrassment, a public recognition that we haven't done the thing we need to do to get us out of this nightmare. Um, I'm not sure. Um, but to me, you know, so much really depends on our ability to find cases. Uh, and we need to test people who aren't sick. We need to detect to pick up, you know, to detect the mildly symptomatic. We need to detect their contacts, contacts of contacts. We need to over test to figure out where this is and, and, and you know, confine those folks so that we can come out of our houses and open up stores again and, and right. function as a society. I, I, you know, I, I agree. To me, it makes some sense. And I feel like I'm reading that and seeing that some people are saying those things, but you're right, there's a substantial part of the country that's sort of glossing over that because we would have to confront the fact that we haven't solved the logistics around testing and that's a huge gaping hole yeah i want to know a lot more about that because that does seem like a you know if your impulse is to demand of government a change that that's a very good demand um and it's one that has probably been anticipated in california and certainly in in new jersey and in new york and connecticut um watching this play out is basically to me seems like watching 50 different countries um, deal with a public health emergency. Uh, and it's just, it's too much to keep up with every day, I think. But thank you so much for your help in helping us do that. And we will have you back as soon as your schedule allows for it. We appreciate the time you spent with us today. Thanks. Happy to be a part of this. So now we're going to turn to my second guest, 
Jim Kendra, and let me introduce you to him. Jim is professor in the School of Public Policy and Administration and director of the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. Previously, he was coordinator of the Emergency Administration and Planning Program in the Department of Public Administration at the University of North Texas. That's where I first met Jim Kendra. His research interests focus on individual and organizational responses to risk, improvisation and creativity during crisis, post-disaster sheltering and housing, and planning for behavioral health services. Jim has participated in several quick response disaster reconnaissance trips, including the 2001 World Trade Center attack, 2003 Midwest tornadoes, Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004, and Hurricane Ike in 2008. But he keeps up with every disaster of our time, as well as documenting maritime relief efforts in the United States. Following the 2000-2010 Haiti earthquake, he is co-author with Tricia Walkendorf of a really remarkable book, which I hope everyone will check out, American Dunkirk, The Waterborne Evacuation of Manhattan on 9-11. Jim Kendra, welcome to COVID Calls. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So let me start by asking you, um, where are you calling from and how are things where you are? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, I am calling from uh, Newark, Delaware. Um, that's where the University of, uh, of Delaware is. Probably like many people, certainly many people who are in academia and elsewhere, uh, I have been physically distancing at home for the last uh, couple of months, except for forays out for uh, necessary supplies, uh, and, and now well masked at uh, at grocers and so forth. Um, and you know, as uh, as everybody else, looking to see what the trajectory of this is going to be over time as we're probably entering our, what, seventh week, I guess, of, of this or something like that. Well, we've uh, been very lucky uh, to have Sarah DeYoung and we've had Valerie Marlowe. Uh, we will have uh, Jennifer Trivetti and also Trisha Wachtendorf. So I'm getting, um, you know, we're benefiting in this discussion by the expertise that you have all uh, collected there at the Disaster Research Center, but I've, you've been on my mind a lot there because, you know, the signature of the Disaster Research Center is a sociological disaster research methodology of rapid response field work. And that's been really kind of a signature of your own career. Must be very counterintuitive to you in the middle of this disaster to be at home. Well, we, we have been able to adapt to that a little bit. So uh, about a, a week or so, maybe a couple of weeks ago, we, uh, we inaugurated a, uh, a community-wide study of adaptation, focusing initially at the university and then broadening out to the, the wider Newark, Delaware, and then the environs around that, where making use of, making use of Zoom, uh, we are uh, uh, meeting with uh, faculty, with members of the community, with, uh, you know, with others, to try to document what their experiences have been over, you know, over the last several weeks or a couple of months of this event. So it's true that DRC, you know, was a pioneer of, of quick response disaster research, which did often involve travel. In this case, it doesn't, but it is still, at least in our view, just as important to, you know, to document people's experiences during this, during this ongoing kind of event. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's important for the historical record, it's important for science, it's important for being able to, to distill out particular challenges and, and lessons that might even be applicable 
while this event is, is going on, once we you know, have a chance to do some analysis, sadly, there will probably be, according to most estimates, a, a second wave of this where anything that we you know that we learn might be might be valuable, I mean, maybe sooner than we would prefer, mm. actually. So so we're still we're still keeping to the to the uh, the tradition mm-hmm. of, of DRC's response methods. But, you know, like a lot of things, we've had to adapt that as well. Fascinating. I want to come back to some of the archives of DRC and, and, and draw a parallel maybe later to nuclear planning and nuclear attack. We'll come back around to that. But um, I wanted to ask you, you know, this is called, this program is called COVID Calls. And there's, I haven't mentioned this in several weeks, but it, I called it that at first because after disasters, in the midst of disasters, the way I often work is literally pick up the phone and call people who know a lot more about disasters than I do. And you are, you have over the years been one of those people who's been kind enough to answer the phone. So I want to ask you a very open-ended question right now, which is that, you know, looking across all of the different ways that this disaster is reflecting society, shaping a new society, if it's communication, if it's disaster planning, if it's economic impacts, where is your antenna right now on these things? Where are you seeing new things? Where are you seeing things we knew reinforced that we should have known better? Take us inside sort of what's in your mind right now. Sure. And it's, and it's, I guess it's, I guess it's all of, all of those things because in, I mean, in some ways, obviously this, you know, this is certainly, uh, you know, a, a not recently precedented event. But on the other hand, we, we do see a lot of similarities to, you know, to what we observe in other kinds of disaster responses, whether they emerge from, you know, catastrophic storms or, or seismic calamities um, and so forth. So, you know, as you know, one of the things that we focus on a lot and have focused on a lot at, at DRC is aspects of emergent behavior, aspects of improvisation, aspects of people coping. And, uh, and we've seen that in, in many different ways, uh, you know, throughout, throughout our, our local environs where, you know, restaurants, for example, have shifted, you know, their menus to, you know, to take out only, or they shifted to delivery or they're selling groceries or in one noteworthy case, one of the, one of the restaurant owners has turned his, his, uh, you know, employees toward doing like minor home repairs and so forth to sort of to keep them employed during, you know, during the time that uh, that business has slowed down. So, you know, we, we see a lot of similarities as, as far as that goes. We, we certainly see the same emphasis uh, on the need for communication that we, that we see in other kinds of events, the need for communication to come from, you know, sources that are trustworthy to a particular constituency that are, you know, that provide people with a clear indication of the risk, that provide people with action steps that they, you know, they can actually take. So all these things, you know, that are well documented from, from the literature for decades are also, you know, uh, are showing up now as, as being just as important. So, so although, the, although the nature of the, you know, the hazard agent, the, the, you know, the, the virus is different, a lot of the, a lot of the response attributes are the same, and that's something that you know that the, the the pioneers of the field, Dines and Quarantelli, would have talked about with their idea of agent-generated versus response-generated disaster demands. Which is not you know not to say that there aren't obviously there's important differences, and but nevertheless, a lot of what we you know a lot of what we see is also 
is also familiar. So, you know, in some ways that, that, that could or should help us to, to get our bearings, even in, in an unfamiliar event like this. So we, you know, we have seen, uh, you know, emergent activities, we have seen improvisation, we have seen adaptability, we, mm -hmm. we've seen logistics problems, uh, just as we would see after, you know, after a, a catastrophic hur a hurricane, like in Puerto Rico a couple of years ago. Um, in many ways, what, what has struck me is how, is how this has been converted to a, a logistical and supply chain mm -hmm. event, as much as a, as a biological event. Where are our masks? Where are our ventilators? Where are our gowns? Who's got them? Who can make them? How can we, how can we drive them there? How can we harvest the food that's, you know, that, that's, you know, moldering in, in the fields and, you know, in different places. So, so it, it, it certainly has, has a, you know, a biological dimension to it, but also very much a, a supply chain problem, a, a logistics problem. And I and it and it struck me that when when FEMA was appointed the the lead agency along with HHS a, f a few uh, few weeks ago, that that partly that was in response to the fact that that this is uh, a logistics thing and that and that potentially FEMA would have expertise at mobilizing resources on a, on a national scale. So it's so it's not a completely unfamiliar event. Um, not to say that there aren't, you know, some very, yeah. you know, very substantial, unfamiliar challenges, of which physical distancing um, is one of those, obviously. So the, the what you're describing then sounds to me that in many areas the social science is bearing up pretty well. The areas of research that we've been fascinated with now for a while, um, improvisation, for example, um, um, sort of emergent capacity of organizations, things like that. But I still hear this word unprecedented thrown around a lot, which of course as a historian always makes me a little anxious, but... but and I was, I'm always worried about saying that word to a historian actually, because, <laughs> okay, you because have... no, nothing is unprecedented. The, the world has ended many times before. Sure. It just, you know, depends on, on our, Who's perspective our scale, but, sure, but yeah. I, take that, yeah, I take that point. But, but let me come to one, an area that I think is worth thinking about. And, and this, you mentioned just a second ago, FEMA becoming a lead agency. Um, I would like to hear your take on the response, the governmental response, federal, state, local. It does seem unprecedented to me to have a 50 state and four territorial response. I don't know if we have anything like that or if we've even seen decent planning for something like that. It seems almost to have been beyond the imagination of, of the planners. I don't know. How are you feeling about the, what you're seeing with the response? Um, I think that, well, it depends. It de so a complicated question. And I, I think it, it depends on the, you know, on the, the scale that we, we look at. But one of the things that, that repeatedly occurs to me during, during this event and, and in other events is how our so-called system for managing calamities at this scale is is virtually designed to fail. We, you know, we have expected a, a pandemic of this sort. People have thought about it for, for years. Uh, there was the, you know, the, op uh, the uh, Crimson Contagion exercise that was done last year that was reported on by the New York Times, which predicted in, you know, very great detail with great accuracy, many of the challenges that we're, that we're seeing now. Um, 
so so this this event was was predicted. It was foreseen. Hurricane Sandy was predicted. It was foreseen. Um, Hurricane Katrina was predicted. It was foreseen, and and yet we continually observe the same kinds of interorganizational breakdowns, the same kinds of failures, the same large expectations that are placed on 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 FEMA as you know, sort of being the face of emergency management, which you know, which is really beyond the ability of that of that agency to to uh, to handle i th i think we're seeing the the effects of years of failure to learn from event to event which which i think in large part is due to the kind of outsourced system of emergency management that we that we have in the united states where basically fema and other agencies act as contractors for other kinds of agencies or organizations that actually do the work mm. that they are they're continually spun up for a disaster and then wound down again. So mm. there's a you know there's a repeated loss of of organizational continuity and learning over you know over a period of time. We we place expectations on on FEMA on the FEMA administrator like that person can act as a as like an emergency management general who will like direct a a smooth and perfectly synchronized disaster response. Um, but we really don't, we don't take these things seriously in the way that we take other organizations seriously in the United States. We take the army seriously. We don't disband the army, you know, every five years. And, and, uh, and that's not how we treat disaster management. We treat disaster management as if, as if it's always uh, a one-off kind of a thing, like there isn't a disaster everywhere at some time. So in that sense, the, you know, to, to circle back to your question, the response is, is disheartening, but but not surprising, and and again, I, I think I think stems from the fact that we we just don't take hazard seriously, we don't take risk seriously, we don't take um, we don't take FEMA seriously, and that is a you know that's a, a flaw in our overall emergency management philosophy in this country. So, I asked a similar question to Kathleen Tierney, and she gave a very similar <laughs> answer. Which it, and and she talked about all of the planning that had been, that had gone across every different agency and every different imaginable. And you said that you know the the fantasy documents they're plan, planning documents, but fantastical documents like Crimson Contagion or Hurricane Pam back in two thousand four. And yet the same errors and the same lack of capacity to move knowledge across different administrations. So what does that say to you? I mean, what does that say to you more broadly about the United States? That it's the calculation? I mean, is this, should we just do this as simple cost-benefit analysis and it's just cheaper to not be prepared and pay for it on the, other, on the other side? Or is there something that's just harder about disaster knowledge to, to pass along? I, I'm still trying to get my, my hand or my head around why these are such difficult problems to manage across time. Part of it, I, I, I think, is, is this, is the fact that our, our style of managing an emergency is done through these network systems that, that, that normally are separate, but that are supposed to come together in a disaster through, through documents and protocols like the incident command system 
or the national response framework or, you know, or, or others. Um, and, and those, those, that style works in principle, but when it comes to actually doing the work, there's, there's a, there's a kind of a breakdown and, and it almost reminds me of, of like a, like a, a video game where, you know, if you're, like I used to be a merchant seaman, so so I've I've played with like maritime video games. And at a certain point, you get to the end of the simulation geography and you just kind of hit a blank wall. Or like in the Truman Show, where like it just ends. Mm-hmm. And so, in a sense, our our exercises and planning just kind of reach this end point. So, as a as a as an example of that, reading through the the Crimson Contagion uh, report, which again the New York Times, you know, published a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. One of, the, one of the disconnects was as follows. The, the Office of Personnel Management was supposed to interact with Department of Health and Human Services and, and make a recommendation for the kind of physical distancing that government employees should, should do. Um, but for some reason, that, that contact wasn't actually made during the course of the exercise, which could be because you know, nobody knew who they were actually supposed to contact. Like, well, like when it comes right down to it, who do I call on the phone? Right. Like, which actual person? Right. Yes, it says that I'm supposed to contact somebody, but but who? And if you don't know, and if that's never actually been done, mm. then you know, then you're, you're the plan is actually broken at that point. Now, you know, magnify that example by thousands of times at the federal level, at the you know, and at the state level. So. So things that are that are networked together, which we know from public administration theory, take a lot of monitoring and oversight and constant working of a system mm. in order to in order to make it actually function. And even then, it's challenging, and and even organizations like like the military run into difficulty when mm. you know you try to get the air force and the army to work together when right. you bring in reservists afterwards. And this isn't you know this is a, a single organization with you know well trained people who spend careers advancing in rank and, and uh, you know, and are similarly acculturated. Now, imagine that in, in our fragmented disaster management system. How can that work? That was exactly what I was going to ask you is, is that if this sort of line in staff, you know, uh, functions in boxes is, is the way that it's sort of written, and then we expect real humans to step in there and, and act, then what's then that seems to work in the military, but you're saying, actually, maybe not. Maybe maybe looking at the military as a success story of this kind of planning is the wrong way to think about it. Well, I, it's well. There, as I said, I mean, there's certainly been you know there's certainly been breakdowns. It's it's not a it's not a perfect story, but it is a story of of what a, a single organization does when the people have worked in it for a long period of time. So you know, so to take take the theme administrator, like we've had multiple theme administrators who are you know who are in office six or seven years, maybe at the most. Um, now you take you know an, an army general who's been in thirty years, right? You know, before they manage a, a sizable campaign. So I, I don't want to like you know, excessively, you know, talk about military examples, only to say that that's, that's an organization that the United States takes seriously. Right. Okay. I see what you're saying. And, and your point about continuity of knowledge is really important. And to me, um, 
Dr. Fauci has been a, an interesting person to see in this, right? Because he has this long, I mean, he's well known in the agents, his trust is established. And people might take some issue on any given day with how he communicates or, or what he's doing. But there is that sense of a continuity. Um, we, I didn't plan for us to talk about this, but I'll share something. I was, um, uh, a few months ago, was visiting um, Gettysburg Battlefield and Antietam Battlefield in Western Maryland, Western Pennsylvania. And uh, Antietam Battlefield has been used um, over since, since the Civil War, was used for a long time as a training battlefield. I thought that was really fascinating that, you know, part of military officer training for a long time was to actually do this very deep dive into sort of historical examples and, that, and to find relevance in them. And I've worried about that. I had not put that together with what you're talking about right now, but this sense in which with this incredibly fast turnover in these agencies and not enough training and communication across, how can we expect them um, to not have to rebuild it every time something, something happens like this? And I, I, think, I think in part that's, you know, that's what it is. Even though, even though the agencies are the same, um, yeah. there's often you know, turnover of, of individuals. Um, we, we just have not been, been very good at sort of encapsulating all of, all of that knowledge or in being able to take what we learn in these exercises and then actually make corrections. So, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, Hurricane Pam, right? And, you know, the exercise in, in 2004, and which again, you know, predicted uh, much of what we actually saw in Hurricane Katrina. But, you know, 2004 to 2005, a year's period of time is probably not enough to unravel all of the difficulties that that exercise would have, you know, would have revealed. And, and similarly with, you know, with Crimson Contagion last year, maybe that's five months, four months before, you know, COVID was detected in the U.S. Again, certainly not enough time to unravel a lot of the, you know, I guess, or to, to ravel the, the disconnects mm -hmm. that, were, that were identified. So one thing that I, I think we should certainly be thinking about now is how we can capture a lot of, and I don't want to say lessons learned because they've been learned 50 times, mm -hmm. but how we can better apply what we know that, you know, that we might take away from this. You were one of the first people I ever talked to who very consciously talks about um, economic recession in the same sentence that you might also talk about an earthquake or talk, I mean, you, you, you take a very broad view of disaster as something that, you know, overtaxes our, our systems. And I know that you, you know, coming back to this issue about having a system designed to fail. Um, I worry about that right now as we see the pandemic and the economic recession intermingling. And as we start to see some of the cracks in not only the healthcare system, but also the sort of social safety net. What are you seeing there that, that is concerning to you? I mean, even down to the level of how people get disaster aid, for example. One of the things that, that I observe, and I, I think not unique to me, is just is, is how precisely this, this crisis has revealed the, like, the weaknesses in our entire social structure in, in the United States in, in, in many different ways. It's, it seems to have 
it, it has it has revealed vulnerabilities in in a way that you know that many of us knew, but I think other people were probably not aware of, and that's you know that's now been exposed, and and it shows the the difficulty of of really responding to you know to an event like this. So one thing that struck me there was an article in the New York Times a couple of days ago, I guess over the weekend, and and it focused on the processes in in a number of states for uh, for people to apply for unemployment insurance. And applying for unemployment insurance is one of the main ways that people will access the, you know, the special funding that's been provided by Congress for, you know, for, for this event. And in these states, according to this, you know, to this, this article, the, the process is really made to discourage people or to make it difficult for them to access assistance. It assumes that everybody's trying to scam the system. So, so there are, are a lot of obstacles to, you know, to people to, you know, to, to accessing this, and and it just it just shows how how inept our systems are when we really need to use them for disaster assistance because they're they are predicated on the assumption that people are trying to game the system or they're too lazy to work or you know or, or something along those lines. That's the usual operating norm, and it it is just not that easy to reverse in to reverse that norm. In the middle of an of an event like this, so so those systems almost have they have a punishment mentality in in a lot of ways. You know the systems that New York Times is talking about, or you know periodically you'll see that states you know try to to implement uh, drug testing regimens for people who are receiving public assistance. Right. Uh, you know those again. There's there's a sense that people who need help are you know have to be have to be shamed, have to be punished. It has to be made difficult for them. And a system like that is is totally not suited for disbursing large amounts of, of money on short notice. We were, you know, we've seen in this event, just as we observed previously, you know, how powerful economic interests managed to zorp up assistance money that was, you know, intended for people of of lesser economic means. We saw that after Hurricane Katrina. We saw that after 9/11. Saw it after Hurricane Sandy. So again, over and over, these these um, disconnects or, or this, this, this maldistribution of assistance goes toward powerful interests to the, to the detriment of others. But once again, we don't seem to learn that. Uh, mm. there's, no, there's no continuity of, of knowledge. And of course, there's, you know, there's very substantial and powerful political forces behind that as well. But it, it, it shows the just the fragility of our system and by the way i mean even in you know even in in excellent conditions to try to to get two trillion dollars into the economy in like four weeks was probably going to have some problems absolutely and and not to ask you to take apart and then put back together our entire political economy in five minutes but but i kind of want you to because because there's so many pieces of this to pick up but you're talking about um, systems that are in place in the federal and state level that make it difficult for people, sometimes logistically, um, sometime it, sometimes through use of language, um, sometimes through just, um, uh, as you say, the sort of moral judgment almost of people being receiving benefits. And by the way, that extends also to FEMA disbursements as well. So this is not just states, this is also is federal and yet at the same time um, we have the relief funds coming out 
And all of a sudden I see headlines about companies that are giving back the money, you know, the steak, famous steakhouses or famous, you know, retail uh, outlets. They, because it looks like bad press for them, it, they voluntarily gave it back. You know, it wasn't that there was some oversight mechanism in the government to keep them from getting it. It was that they thought, oh, somebody's going to write a story about this and we have to, we have to give it back. And this sort of de-emphasis or, or lack of investment in inspectors general, what we're seeing generally is sort of taking a part of the oversight mechanism of government that seems to be making it easier for some private entities to, as you said, sort of get these funds in the middle of this, but harder for individuals to get it. I mean, is there something bigger going on here behind the scenes? I know, I mean, you could call it, some people say, well, this is neoliberalism in action. I've seen that written. To me, that's not satisfying. I don't, I don't, that's not a, that's not an explanation. That's just a tagline. So, and I'm, I'm taking a second to, to think because as you, as you say, to, to sort of unravel the entire and open up the entire political economy of, of the country in, in just a, a minute or two, uh, challenging task. I, I think that is the, that without the, you know, without the kinds of, of close oversight and experience in observing how these programs typically go, there, there is less capacity and less you know, less ability to, to anticipate how powerful entities can, can perfectly legally, right, or yeah. more or less perfectly legally, um, manage to, you know, to, to get access to those, to those funds. Perhaps if there was, you know, a, a, a large fund of experience, uh, you know, amongst um, regulators going back over 20 years that would look at how disaster funding has typically gone awry, Maybe then there would be, you know, there would be some modest chance of of that. In these, you know, in these cases, uh, I think we can we can credit what civil civic outrage, civil society, moral outrage. Um, uh, we could be optimistic and and think it was the better nature of these uh, large entities that they, you know, they gave back a couple million dollars, which is probably not huge to them, but which is massively important. To others, I think I think part of that is is maybe still a story to be written mm. in terms of of how, of how that happened mm. and how it could be how it could be made less likely mm. in in the future, um, because it has been part of the the history of of disaster is that powerful entities managed to to divert these you know funds perfectly legally or more or less legally, yeah. um, but in a way that they're not really intended for. And part of that too, of course is the haste with which the programs are developed. Right. Like again, $2 trillion in like three weeks or you know, whatever it was. Um, right. It, it's uh, not surprising that there's some slippage. It's, it's just, yeah. it's, it's actually good that there was enough, um, I guess, monitoring of this from, you know, from outside of, of the government itself. Thank you for going down the line with me on this. And um, it didn't, tell you ahead of time, I didn't expect to, us to go quite this far with this, but I actually I think it's quite useful because disaster research is much more, is much broader than people often expect. And the, the lines between what we can have historically thought of what kind of core disaster research is, the boundaries between that and public policy or economics 
are permeable boundaries. And I think right now in the middle of the pandemic, we're seeing that they should be more permeable. We should have more experts, I think, able to do what you can do, which is to talk about very specific relief programs and then talk all the way out at these sort of broader, more structural problems of, let's say, government oversight and disbursement of funds. So that's why I was glad we could talk about that. Well, I don't know that I do it especially well, but it is sort of one of the, you know, it's one of the things that I, yeah. that I, I think about is, is how in practice to, to try to bring these programs into, into reality and to try to understand where the, you know, where the blind spots are in that. I think, I think a couple of, you know, these documents that I mentioned sort of reveal that. I think, um, I, I have no doubt that over the next several weeks, we'll find other mistakes that have been made in, you know, in, the, in trying to distribute this vast amount of money in, in such a short period of time. There is, you know, and, and, and I, guess, I guess to our benefit is there is a substantial body of experience in the sociology of disasters in public administration, political science, uh, you know, and other fields that, that could allow us to, to wrap our brains around, you know, how these, how these assistance programs can go awry, how responses to disaster perpetually show the same interorganizational failures. Um, so we can, you know, we can have some confidence in that. people you're listening to COVID calls and my guest today is Jim Kendra director of the disaster research center at the University of Delaware and we still have time to get questions in because I think Jim has been kind enough to agree to stay on a little bit longer I hope um, we've been talking very broadly I want to focus back in um, and I want to ask you about nursing homes um, and in general you've done some research um, with other sort of partners in the healthcare world more generally um, talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing there in one sense, I guess, kind of expected and predicted. We watched what was happening in Italy, that the coronavirus was taking a particular toll on older populations. And yet, um, as Esther was saying at the top, these have become real hotspots in the United States. What's your take? I think, you know, once again, we should not be surprised at the, you know, the particular vulnerability of those, uh, you know, of those institutions, as you mentioned, is something that we, that we've studied before, but, but there the setting would seem to be, you know, un unfortunately perfect for an outbreak of this sort where you have, you know, in many cases, uh, you know, an, an older, oftentimes frail population, people living in very close quarters, um, you know, often with, uh, you know, with, with hygiene problems that are, you know, that are part of the, the normal, you know, part of, part of normal operations um, with, a, with uh, a disease that doesn't give a warning, you know, it, you know, where people can transmit it, you know, as we've learned before they show any symptoms and where the kinds of, of protocols that you need for, for infection control uh, are very difficult to maintain. So I, you know, I think back to, to some of the research that we did on, on Ebola a few years ago, and you know the intense training and watchfulness that that the clinical staff would go through when putting on their protective equipment, from taking it off, training, watching each other, different teams overseeing 
the process to be sure that nobody made a mistake. Um, you know, and that was, you know, in the, in the United States, that was for a relatively small number of, of cases. And it was a very intense process to, you know, for, of, of infection control. It's hard to see that happening in, in the, a nursing home environment or aboard a cruise ship, you know, as we saw mm. with, you know, with some of those cases uh, as well. Just the, the intensity of the, of the protocols for personal protective equipment, for making sure that, you know, that disease agents aren't, aren't spread. Like it's a, it's a massive job. I want to get to a comment and a question here. It just came in from Kim Fortune. Kim says, um, it's a very important point that the military is limited example, going back to our, what we were talking about previously, that the military is a limited example of an organizational ideal. Um, strict command doesn't uh, well prepare for the innovation that Jim Kendra is saying is so important. That's her comment. She has a question here, which I think is relevant to the DRC. And I wanted to ask you something along these lines too. How can universities help foster the disaster learning that hasn't happened. Going back to the sort of previous conversation we were, we were having, there's a lot of knowledge out there and yet it doesn't seem to always get implemented. There's, the uptake isn't always there. Where, what are the frontiers, particularly where universities can intervene? This is your business. Tell us. What should in we a do? few ways. Uh, obviously, the, the, the teaching that we do in our courses, particularly you know, our disaster science and management courses, whether, you know, of whatever name they happen to be called from, you know, the bachelor through doctoral level, I think are, are important avenues for, for bolstering the experience base of, of emergency management officials, whether they're in the, in the private or the nonprofit sector. One of the things that we, that we consider to be, uh, you know, our, uh, one of our missions at DRC is public education and, and outreach, which means trying to be, you know, responsive to, to media calls when they come in to help journalists, you know, um, uh, you know, present the, the the best science as as we know it. Um, we try to be, you know, in contact with and, and helpful to local and, and state government as you know, as, or federal government as much as uh, you know, as much as we can. So, I think I think part of part of the task of a of a university, at, at least you know, to my perspective, is to be a resource for learning and 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 in whatever area that, you know, the faculty have their particular competence. So those are probably the, you know, the three good avenues for doing it through the education programs, through publication and outreach, including the media and, and introducing ourselves to and trying to be a resource for, for public officials. So we're entering a period, I think we actually already, many universities uh, have been in it. We're entering a period of austerity in universities, private and public. Doesn't that put interdisciplinary programs like disaster research centers in, in special precariousness in this moment? I'm worried about that, that, that places that are seen as, um, that are often don't fall into one department, that are not, cannot be protected as well in a university ecosystem that they might in this, uh, maybe counterintuitively or ironically in this moment, that they may be specially endangered. Do you worry about that? I think I have, I have concerns for higher education in general, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which are certainly heightened at, uh, at this particular time. I think, you know, for, for the last several years in the United States, I would characterize as, as higher education as being under siege in a lot of ways, facing 
you know, perhaps, uh, you know, the, the greatest crisis of legitimacy that it's had in, in many years, um, decades. Uh, you know, influential critics talk about universities as, you know, being ivory towers where the students aren't going to get jobs afterwards. And so, yeah. so universities have been, um, you know, in, a, in kind of a, in, a, in a vulnerable position, I think, in, just in terms of the prevailing rhetoric in the, in the United States. I think, though, that, that properly approached, this can also be a time for universities to show their work that they are sites of innovation. And we, you know, we, we regularly see that, you know, engineering programs have been, you know, producing ventilators cheaply, that, that uh, you know, that university professors who are in public health or epidemiology have been at the forefront of, you know, some of the dialogues on this. So, so while, while it might be a time of even further vulnerability, I think that, you know, with, with some, um, with a little bit of guts, I think that universities can can reestablish their um, their their legitimacy, reestablish their usefulness in in the public rhetoric, and and I think they should do so. I think I think that universities have expertise that is needed now, and uh, and should not be afraid to you know to offer it either. Well, um, you know I have opinions about this, and, and I'll be in the opinion box here for just a second, but just back to underline what you were saying. It seems to me at this moment, what's actually demonstrated is that um, every university and college and with ones that specialize in vastly different things from the arts to hardcore engineering to medical sciences need disaster research centers that are explicitly interdisciplinary and that have done the work that you're just saying is important and that is taking the educational mission really important, the research mission certainly, but the educational mission, educating practitioners and trusting practitioners to be interested in the science because they are, uh, developing longstanding relationships with science communicators, including journalists, and then also developing as best you can these longer term relationships with policymakers, even though that's net, there's less, there's more art to that than science. And I can't help but wonder in a moment like this, if we didn't have, you know, 50 DRCs or, or natural hazard centers, like what, you know, Lori Peak runs out in Colorado, wouldn't we be in a, in a better situation? Now, I suppose you could say I'm an academic, so of course I think that, but, but I do really, I mean, we wouldn't be doing this if I didn't believe that. And we have to articulate that in this moment, I think is what I'm saying. Well, I, I agree. And, and, and that's, you know, and that's the, that's the point that I, that I was, I was trying to make. And I, I think you, I think you've said it better, but this is, this is a time for, for universities and for, and for faculty of, of really of every discipline to, to bring to bear the particular expertise that they have. You know, I was, I was reading in, I think it was Inside Higher Ed uh, last week about how in, you know, in, in Germany, within the discussions on whether and to what extent to reopen, you know, that, you know, that uh, scholars from the humanities from, you know, from the, and from the social sciences are, are, are in on that in a way that we don't have in the, in the United States. But there is, there is room for every discipline because a crisis of, of this magnitude touches every domain of, of knowledge. And, and again, I think this is where, I think this is where universities can shine, but we have to, you know, we have to rise to it. We have to, we sort of have to confront this headwind with exactly what it is that we're able to do 
that is valuable. I think that, that in some ways universities, have, academia in general, has fallen into that crisis of legitimacy because we stopped being able to, to articulate in a, in a relatively brief way what our value is. It's just something that we, we hadn't had to do, I think, for a long time. But now I think it's urgent. And here in this, you know, this most compelling crisis, we actually do have something to say about it that can be useful. So you wrote this tremendous book with Tricia Wachtendorf about the waterborne evacuation of Manhattan, 9-11. And what you were really writing about was networks of trust, expertise, competency, uh, creativity and improvisation that on any average day nobody sees and then all of a sudden it's, it's there. How do you think you, you're going to be applying some of those kind of lessons from that book into this COVID-19 pandemic? So we, we will see either a, a maintenance of those kinds of networks or the forging of new ones. So for example, when, you know, when the restaurant that my wife and I go to, you know, they, uh, they're mostly closed, but they open up once in a while. And so we make a point of, you know, of, of getting food to take out. It's not something we would normally do, but in this case, you know, I, I think it is. So I think, I mean, it's something that we, you know, that we want to do. So I think that we are seeing, you know, I, um, a kind of, of connection across different facets of the community to, to try to keep things going. We, we are seeing different kinds of, of innovations. We, we're seeing, um, you know, people are, I think, mostly, and I'll say that guardedly, complying with, you know, physical distancing, because not everybody is, certainly. Um, but I think a lot of the things that we, you know, that we wrote about in American Dunkirk are going to have their, their analogs in, uh, in this situation, which is people trying to maintain their connections, people trying to think creatively, people trying to, to innovate. And those are, you know, those are the, the normal avenues of, of coping. It has struck me that this is, um, again, not unprecedented, but, not, but, but unique in that so much of the violence of this disaster has occurred indoors and out of sight. And so that phenomenal waterborne evacuation that you and Tricia write about is, is, I mean, it was visible. I mean, it was happening and documentable in that way that you could talk to those captains. Do you think we're going to have problems doing research on this disaster because so much of it has occurred in private spaces and with practitioners who may not feel free to talk about their experiences? I, I guess my broader question is how do you think, what are the unique research problems you think we're facing here? Some of the things, well, some of the, some of the challenges that, that you've described will, will, will certainly come to the forefront. And I think, I think, you know, how I would answer that would depend on what the particular subject of study is or what the, what the field of study is. Again, you know, as, as I said earlier, you know, disaster, t you know, can somehow involve every aspect of, of human knowledge. So, you know, potentially scholars who are interested in, you know, in family and, and household matters, you know, they, you know, they will, uh, you know, they will perhaps find something at that scale that is very different than we might find 
you know, um, at some other scale of social activity. So I, you know, I've, I've seen predictions that the, you know, the rates of domestic violence will increase, which, uh, which is probably one of the main ways that crime increases after disaster anyway, typically. Um, it would not be surprising to, you know, to see that again, uh, particularly as economic stresses take hold. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I don't, I don't know that it will be more complicated, um, but it will, it will fall out in, in different directions, if, if that makes sense. I think, I think that too is a, a story still to be, to be written. Yeah, and I suppose any disaster we look at, there's so much of the information that's uh, kept and guarded and not meant to somehow come out, and yet social scientists do find ways to, to uncover those archives or those tropes or people who are willing to speak. And, um, maybe it's too early to, this is my final point question to you is probably too early to ask you, but I mean, if you had to pick up one piece of this to begin some research on where are you, where are you reaching first? I think I would, I would get back to a couple of the, of the, the points that I, that I made earlier. I mean, clearly the, the work that we're presently doing at DRC on, on, on adaptations within our, our local environs is, is something, you know, that I am going to pursue, you know, uh, just because we're, we're, you know, we're so heavily involved in that. But over time, I, I would like to turn some attention to these, these organizational disconnects and, tr and try to understand in more detail how it is that, you know, that these, that these plans have 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 these cutoffs that nobody can really see at the time. It mm. it feels like they planned, and they mm. and they must have thought that, but then actual circumstances don't don't really connect to that. And I think that's one of the kind of the mysteries of planning. And if it really does come down to to trying to know, you know, how an an actual person is going to make an actual phone call to get the actual information that that plan needs, that's what we need to know. That's where it falls apart your visual image of coming to the edge of a universe uh, and not knowing what's on, because it hasn't been filled in yet, is su such a, a devastating one and maybe an inspiring one to people um, too, that we have so much work yet to do. Jim, Kendra, I've been so selfish with your time, but uh, really appreciate your sharing your insights and having this discussion with me today on COVID calls. I wanna remind people that we're on COVID calls every weekday, five o'clock. And tomorrow I'll be talking to Chuck Strozier. Uh, please do tune in for that conversation. It promises to be a really interesting one. Chuck um, is the former director of the Center on Terrorism at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. And he's a wide ranging historian who's thought particularly a lot about violence and the apocalyptic. And we will talk about that tomorrow. Jim Kendra, thanks for coming on COVID Calls. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. This was great, thanks. Stay healthy everyone and we'll speak with you tomorrow.